to you, O Christ. Let's also turn in our Bibles to the book of Genesis. You should have a sermon notes page in your bulletin this morning. And it has a, a quick little summary of what we're going to do this morning. And then also a, a quick outline as well uh, over the weeks and months to come. The little outlines might get a little more developed, but uh, this will help us this morning follow along. Book of Genesis. The Bible is a big book. It's like being a Southern Californian flying up to the Pacific Northwest. At some point on that flight, if you look down, as my kids might say, it's trees for days. Lots and lots of trees. With 66 books, 39 of the Old and 27 of the New Testaments, 1,189 chapters, at least uh, that's how many the King Jimmy tells us there are. And something like three quarters of a million words, at least in English. That's a lot of trees, isn't it? In 23 years of ministry amongst you, I preached through 22 of those 66 books. I went back and counted this week. So that's about, well, that is one third, exactly one third. I'm not a mathematician, but I'm pretty sure. 66 divided by 22, or 22 divided by 66 is one-third. Several, I preached in several of the main books twice. We we just went to the book of Acts for the second time in many, many moons. Uh, I've done numerous doctrinal and practical and seasonal series through untold texts. So I figure I preach through about one-half of the Bible. We've examined a lot of trees, a lot of branches, and a lot of leaves at times as well. But there's still a lot in front of us. So I want us to take off and get about 30,000 feet above the trees and to see and take in the whole of that forest that is the Bible. In the next year or two, we'll, uh, next year or so, uh, we'll, we'll do that. Uh, we'll be surveying the entire Bible, sometimes one book like today, uh, the book of Genesis. Sometimes we might uh, combine them if they're small enough to do that. So, what's the Bible? Let me stop and acknowledge that I've used that term Bible, Old Testament, and New Testament without defining them. No doubt you know, but uh, just I'll pretend that you don't. Uh, Our term, the Bible, is a very uh, extremely wooden translation of the Greek term, ta biblia, which means the books. The Bible really isn't a book. The Bible is a library of books. Uh, The Bible, Ta Biblia, is uh, the books. It's what we call our collection of sacred texts. That's why Scripture calls them the Scriptures. And you'll hear me say that lots of times. The Scripture says this. The Scriptures say that. Uh, These texts come from the time before the coming of Jesus. That's the Old Testament. Sometime around 1500 B.C., all the way to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll just say roughly zero. It's not exactly accurate, but that time, before Christ, and then all the way into the New Testament, uh, the first century. So uh, these are 66, quote-unquote, books. Uh, They are written over the span of roughly 1,500, we'll say 2,000 years. We're not quite sure how old Job is, about 2,000 years. Uh, They're written in three different languages, Hebrew, sometimes Aramaic, and then also the New Testament written in Greek. Uh, And uh, they're written by multiple authors on multiple continents, throughout the Mediterranean world, uh, 
all with one grand and glorious story. So, the Bible, the Old and New Testaments, the scriptures as we call them, we believe these books and only these books are breathed out by God. That's what Paul tells Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.16. They are breathed out by God, or as the older language says, inspired. Now, it's important for you and I to notice and recognize that when we talk about the Bible being inspired, that we're not speaking about the writers themselves feeling some sense of inspiration, religious inspiration, for them to then put their thoughts down about God, whether it was on papyrus scrolls or later vellum pages. Who breathed out the scriptures? Children, who breathed out the Bible? God did. God did. That's why that, that translation of inspiration, it gives us a bad, it has, a, it has a, a, a connotation that it's really not meant to have. That It's inside of the person, the writer, whether it's John, whether it's Moses. No, that's why we translate it as breathed out by God. To say breathed out is another way of saying what the scripture says multiple times. God said. God spoke. That's what breathed out means. God said. God spoke. And so when you and I listen, when we read, when we meditate upon the Scriptures, the words of the Scriptures, we are entering into a conversation with God in a face-to-face communication. That's what the Bible is. It's God's message. It's God's revelation. It's God's word to the world. And you and I are privileged to be able to enter into conversation with God as we read it. Well, what's it all about? God, in all these books, these 66 books, he tells us a story. And the story is described like this. I'm going to read a couple of verses, and you're going to tell me who said these verses. They bear witness about me. What's the Bible about? They bear, they, the scriptures, they bear witness about me. Who's the me in that statement? Then secondly, I'll come back to that. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that means the whole of the Old Testament, Moses, the first five books, the prophets is a way of describing the rest. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them, these men upon a road, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Who's the the he? They bear witness about me. Who's the me? And who's the one who says, who, of whom it's described? He testified to, uh, they testify about him, the scriptures. Who's that person speaking in those, in those verses? It's Jesus, isn't it? What is Jesus saying there? He's saying that the God who spoke in the Old Testament, don't ever forget this, the God who spoke in Genesis all the way to Malachi in our English Bible, or Genesis all the way to Second Chronicles in the Hebrew Bible, the God who spoke in the Old Testament, according to Jesus, was whom? Jesus. The God who spoke in the Old Testament, according to Jesus, was whom again? Jesus. It's not loud enough. We've we got to get this. The God who spoke in the Old Testament according to Jesus is whom? Jesus, the Son of God, before he was Jesus. The Son of God, 
is the one who spoke. And God said, God spoke, God breathed out his word. According to Jesus, those words are his words, testifying about him as he is to come. In fact, he's still speaking. He's still speaking. Let's listen to his voice as we sang this morning and obey his voice and hear. Let's begin the beginning then with Genesis. So if your Bible open, uh, we're going to flip through many texts and many passages and sometimes I'm just going to allude to them and uh, I, might I might mention the reference, so you're going to follow through. We're going to survey Genesis this morning. Let's begin in the beginning with Genesis. Genesis is the Greek title, uh, which means beginning or it means origin. Uh, the Hebrew title is Bereshit, which is translated as in the beginning. In the beginning. So Genesis, or is, as the Jews describe it, Bereshit. Uh, the first word of the, of, the, of the book is the title of the book. We'll come to Exodus. Uh, the next, uh, in our next sermon, we'll be in Exodus. Wa'ela uh, Shemot is the beginning. Uh, these are the names is, is, the, is the title of the book. As the opening book of the Old Testament and the whole Bible... Genesis tells a story of the God who creates and the God who covenants. The God who creates and the God who covenants. So notice, first of all, this is a story of creation, chapters 1 and 2. We'll focus really on this uh, this morning. In the beginning, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning. What was God doing before he created the heavens and the earth? What was God doing before that? St. Augustine said he was creating hell for the curious. That's what he was doing before creation. Seriously, though, God is love. God is love, 1 John 4, 8. God exists in the eternal present, in a relationship of love. We are Christians, and we accept the doctrine of the Trinity. This means the most glorious, the most sublime, the most uh, perfect relationship of love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is love. There was an eternal, we might say, outflow of love from each of the divine persons and an eternal inflow of that love into each of the persons. The Father loves the Son. The Son receives that love. The Son loves the Father. The Father receives that love. It's this way from and to each of the three holy persons of the Trinity. So what was God doing before in the beginning? God is love. Here's the amazing truth for us. This God, Elohim, verse 1, as he's called there, Elohim, God, this God who is love and, and whose love is therefore perfect and in, in need of nothing more, he created. In the beginning, God created the heavens, and the earth. Why did God create? Why did God create? You created all things, the song of heaven says in Revelation 4. You created all things, and by your will, they existed and were 
created. Why did God create? Because he willed it. God desired to create. And so almighty is this will that creation is not described as you or I would quote-unquote create. We would, you and I would use pre-existing woods. We would go out and do a forest in the old days and chop a tree down and make a chair. Today we go to Lowe's or Home Depot and buy nice wood that's already ready to go and build ourselves a chair. No, God does not create that way. God creates, as verse 3 says, Vayomer Elohim, and God says. And God simply said, that's it. He doesn't need to give us an answer, and we don't stand in any position to know uh, and, and, and to demand why God created, but he tells us anyway. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Where's that from? Psalm 19. God created to display his glory. As John Calvin described it, creation is a theater of God's glory. It's where he displays himself. And we see this in the six days of creation in Genesis 1. God displays his glory by transforming what is described as formless and void, verse 2. By going on to create the forms of light and darkness, sky and sea, land and vegetation on days one through three. The formlessness then begins to take form. And then there's fullness within those forms. Sun, moon, and stars to fill the sky, to fill the heavens, the light and dark. Birds and fish to fill the sky and the seas. Animals and the pinnacle himself. Mankind on days four through six. Formless and void becomes formed and fullness in the creation story. Again, Augustine said that God displays his handiwork over the six days of creation for our benefits, not for his, but for ours, so that we can contemplate his works one at a time. Even more, this God who is life and love created to share that life and love with his creation. And especially as the end of chapter 1 goes on to describe, with us, his special image bearers. Note, as you look at Genesis 1, note that while everything else is created by a sheer act of God's will and word, Vayomer Elohim, and God says, you see that in verse 3, for example, and, and elsewhere. It's only when it comes to the creation of human beings does Elohim, God, slow down, we might say, deliberate, and, and have a conversation. Again, we believe in the Trinity. When chapters 1, verse 26 says, let us make Adam, man, in our image after our likeness, we believe this to be the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. The Father, Son, Holy Spirit spoke and received each other's words of love to create beings so precious that this conversation only happens when we, when they, when we are created. Everything else is simply God said, and it was. With us, God stops and says, let us make. Let us create after our image and likeness. In fact, the special character of humankind and the care the first man received is shown in chapter 2, where 
Uh, you'll notice the difference as you read chapter 1 and 2. In chapter 1, it's Elohim. It's simply God. In chapter 2, it's Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God. Lord, all capital letters. Only when man, humankind, is created do we read Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God. And again, this specialness is shown in his creation when Yahweh Elohim formed, verse uh, 7 of chapter 2, formed the man of dust from the earth, of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Where else do we read about God, as it were, with his very own hands scooping up the dust and breathing into it the breath of life? Nowhere. God simply says, and it is. But yet with us, there's something different. Even more. Of no other creature do we read this. Chapter 2, verse 8, Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, himself planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Displaying his own glory, sharing life and love, God therefore took delight. As chapter 1, verse 31 goes on to say, after he rejoiced in all of his works, After he was refreshed, he declared it all very good. He declared it all very good. Now, one of the the mind-blowing realities that Rabbi Saul of Tarsus that we saw in our studies in the book of Acts this past uh, six, whatever it's been, seven, eight months or so, Rabbi Saul turned Apostle Paul. One of the the mind-blowing realities of what he teaches us about this creation story is that already at creation, already in the garden, before sin was even a thing, Adam, quote, was a type of the one who was to come. Romans 5, verse 14. Right then and there, in the garden, where man could experience life and love that comes from God in its highest earthly way, according to Rabbi Saul, Apostle Paul, God was already planning for something more. Adam and Eve had this life and this love that comes from God himself in a garden that God planted. And they were created with God's very own hand, so to speak. And they were given life by God's very own breath. And only God spoke in this conversational way to create Adam and Eve in the beginning. They had that kind of life, that pinnacle of experience of God. But yet, God was already planning something more. Something more. That something more, loved ones, is the gospel. Our gospel. It was woven into the very fabric of creation itself. Creation was never to exist by itself, but always in relation to the God from whom and through whom and to whom are all things. Romans 11. All things were always pointing forward to that one to come, the eternal Son, our Lord Jesus, the Messiah. And where Adam would, we will, as we see in chapter 3, would fail, this one to come would avail. Where Adam would rebel, he would obey. Where Adam sinned, he would suffer. And where Adam would die, he, the Son, 
the Lord, the Messiah, would rise and bring life to the world. Do you realize that the gospel of Jesus Christ that you believe in right now and already have everlasting life now, and that you are waiting for the greatness and the fullness of it to come one day, do you realize that that gospel of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and resurrection, all that he's done is more than what Adam had in the garden? Do you realize that? We think of Adam in this garden, and chapter 2 goes on to describe there's this mountain from which flows all these four rivers, and there's gold there, and it's this lush, lavish place. We think that that's the pinnacle of of existence as a human being. No. Already in that pristine place, God was planning for something more. One to come. Who would bring us not just an earthly life, but a heavenly life. Not just life with God as a sinless uh, being, but one who had been a sinner and who's known the fullness of forgiveness and who now sees God face to face. And forever and ever and ever adores him for it. Do you realize that what you have in Christ already now and what you will have eventually, not just in heaven, but in the new heavens and new earth? You've got to come back in a year to hear about Revelation, chapter 21 and 22. But I'll give you a preview. There's something more, and it's greater than the garden. You already have that. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? You have more than Adam. So Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2 is a story of creation. We go on to read in chapters 3 through 11 the story of sin. The story of sin. And it's from this height of created human glory in the image and likeness of God that we move to the depths of depravity. This special creation, made in the image of God, blessed with life, blessed with love, like no other creature experience rebelled. Rebelled. The crafty serpent craftily avoided Adam, who was tasked with keeping or guarding the garden in chapter 2, verse 15. Instead, he approached Eve. Now, don't forget, Adam was there. He was right there at her side. So let's not... He gets, he gets, no, he gets no excuses here. But the serpent craftily approached Eve. Asking her a very simple question. Chapter 3, verse 1. Has God, the ESV says, actually said, hath God said? Has God said? And you notice in chapter 3, verse 3, that this led her to add something to God's commands that God never gave. She correctly says, you shall not eat the fruit, the tree that is in the midst of the garden. That's exactly what God said. Neither shall you touch it. That's not what God said. The story goes on to say that she saw, she took, and she ate of that forbidden fruit. All the while, Adam was right at her side, verse 6, and he ate too. That's why John describes this as sin is lawlessness. What's sin? It's lawlessness. God gave a law, and Adam and Eve and we break it. Sin is lawlessness. And knowing that their nakedness now was emblematic of their being naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give accounts, they sewed fig leaves together and 
made themselves loincloths, verse 7 of chapter 3. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God when he approached, verse 8, to execute his justice. Now, this has been our predicament as a human race ever since. This story of sin in chapter 3, it's, it's our predicament as human beings. And it goes something like this. We know that we're guilty. God knows that we're guilty. And we know that God knows that we're guilty. Yet, we try every conceivable way to hide ourselves from God. We may not go out and sow fig leaves together this afternoon, but there is some way that you and I try to hide from God. We try to hide our shame. We try to hide our guilt from him. But he knows. He knows. Do you think when he came to the garden in chapter 3 and said, Adam, where are you? Do you think he didn't know? We are naked and we are exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So stop trying to hide from God. Stop trying to cover up your shame and your guilt. Stop trying. Don't dissemble nor cloak your sins from before the face of Almighty God our Heavenly Father, but confess them with a humble, lowly, penitent, and obedient heart to the end that we might obtain forgiveness of the same and by His infinite goodness and mercy. The only answer to your guilt and your shame is not to hide, but it's to confess it. To confess it to God. So sin is ultimately the guilt that you and I have as a result of Adam's lawlessness, but it has a whole host of other consequences, which Genesis 3 goes on to describe. And in the middle of listing those consequences to the serpent, first of all, to the woman, and then to the man, who's most responsible of all, because he's the, the head of the covenant, the Lord God embedded a word of promise in his curse upon the serpent. You see that in verse number 15. And again, remember how Rabbi Saul said that Adam was a type of the one who was to come. And then we read this, Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to the serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You know that verse, right? We know that verse. The Dutch theologian, i got to mention a Dutch guy, the Dutch theologian Herman Bavink called this de motorbalosa, which means the mother promise. The mother promise. And from this promise comes all other promises. Can you see in that promise the type of the one to come? Not only is there going to be constant conflict between the corporate seeds or offspring of the serpent and the woman, Satan, and all his minions and God's people. But there's a particular seed here. He. He would bruise the serpent's head, meaning he would conquer the serpent. Not just the earthly one, meaning, but the one behind him. 
And in doing so, he would bruise his very own heel. Meaning, he'd be conquered and he'd suffer. Eve's seed would suffer in order to conquer. Notice that. Does that pattern sound familiar? Suffering first, then glory. Crucifixion first, then resurrection. And to show this in in an outward sign, what we call a sacramental sign and a seal, to show this promise in an outward way, the Lord God's threatened judgment doesn't come upon Ab and Eve, but it comes upon some sacrificial animals which stand in Adam and Eve's place, are sacrificed to give them clothing appropriate to cover their nakedness and to show forth the Savior to come. You see that at the very end of chapter 3. Not only is there a promise that this seed to come is going to bruise his heel, meaning he's going to suffer, in order to conquer and to bruise the head of the serpent, meaning to, to, uh, to be conquered and to conquer, that is. But the very clothing they wear foreshadows all this. Animals sacrificed in their place on behalf of their sin to clothe them, to cover them, just like our Lord Jesus Christ does. Now, this enmity that Genesis 3.15 prophesied between the two seeds affects the first family here, Adam and Eve. Uh, By faith in the sacrifice of the coming seed of the woman, which Adam and Eve's very clothes again foreshadowed, their son Abel offered to God, chapter 4, verse 4 says, the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. What does that mean? Firstborn and the fat parts. What does that mean? The best part, right? The best part. In contrast, their other son, Abel's brother, Cain, we are told he offered of the fruit of the ground. The implication is he just took some, whatever he was harvesting, he just took some corn, he just took some, uh, some wheat, he just took a couple apples, whatever, whatever it was. It's of the fruit of the ground. Not the first parts, not the best parts, but of the fruit of the ground. And because the Lord God had regard for, as the ESV translates, or accepted Abel's offering, and he had no regard, or he rejected Cain's offering, what did Cain do to his very own brother? He murdered him, killed him. And his family tree goes on to distinguish itself in many notable and noble activities, chapter uh, 4, Verse 17, they were city builders. Verse 20, they were those who herded and domesticated flocks. Uh, Verse 21, they were known for their music. Their most infamous offspring, though, was was, uh, Lamech, who took two wives, chapter 4, verse number 19, contrary to the Genesis story. And like Cain, murdered people, and in his case, just for touching him. Verse 23, He was a touchy dude. And he called on a curse. Verse 24. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. This guy had a God complex, didn't he? Yet faith burned bright in the darkness. Eve named her next son Seth. 
Why? She explains, for God has appointed or elected for me another offspring instead of Abel. She, she was believing the promise. She believed that Seth was the seed of the woman. Now, of course, we know that he's not, but she believed that. That's why she called him that. Seth's son Enosh continued the faith because we read in verse 26, at that time, uh, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. There was a remnant of grace that believed the promise of a coming Savior. But, as the hymn says, time like an ever-rolling stream bears all its sons away. As God said to Adam, the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. And we read in chapter 5 that emotional, heart-wrenching reality of Adam's rebelliousness that we all still face today in the inevitable refrain of chapter 5, and he died. And he died. How do we face death? How do you and I face the death of a loved one? How do you and I even face down death of ourselves? We are to do so as the ancient family of faith did. They believed everything to come. We can now look back. Believing in the promised Savior bruised for my sins so that I might live in triumph over the grave in Him. That's how we face death. By faith in the promised Savior, Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman. Now, humanity kept circling the drain, so to speak, uh, lowering itself into the very depths of sin and up to the point of which we read in chapter 6, verse 5, the Lord saw, listen to this, that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Wow. That's how bad it was. And so bad, as verse 6 goes on to say, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. And so God decided to do something about it. Something so shocking, he would judge the creation that he once created very good, but that had devolved into sin, and he would judge it with a flood. But again, through judgment, he would show mercy. There's one man there's one man the Lord takes note of, Noah. And because of that one man, Noah, his wife and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives, his three daughters-in-law, are saved. Eight people out of the world would be spared and used to recreate and repopulate a new creation. And in the aftermath of that flood in chapter number 9, Noah sacrificed to God who then established his covenant with Noah, but also with the entirety of the creation. Chapter 9, verse 11. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Notice that. That's the covenant promise that God made, not just to Noah, but to the entire world. And to signify that, to give a sign of that, a sacramental sign of that, the God who judged the world with death said this, verse number 13. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and and earth. Did you catch that? What's the rainbow shaped like, children? What's the rainbow shaped like? Like a bow, like a bow with arrows, right? Like a bow and arrow. 
The rainbow is God's bow that he once used to shoot arrows, so to speak, in the flood, but now he's laid up his bow, never to be used like that again. Now, I've got to say something about the rainbow here. Come on. I've got to say something about the rainbow. I can't pass the rainbow without saying this. Okay? Far from being a symbol of human pride, the rainbow is a sign of God's covenanted mercy toward the world of pride. And you might be here today, and the only thing you know about the, about, about the rainbow, is, besides the one that you can maybe see, the only thing you might even know about the rainbow is the flag. Let me tell you this. That, that rainbow flag is a recent human invention to show human pride. Instead, the rainbow is God's sign to us, prideful, sinful humanity, that he is merciful towards us sinners, that he's long-suffering, patient towards us in our many waywardnesses, and that he ultimately is a God of love who desires to see you, fallen image bearer, restored back into a right relationship to him. How? God's covenant with Noah and the world was a promise to uphold the world so that the redemptive promise of Eve's seed to crush and bruise the serpent's head by bruising his own heel, would come true. The rainbow shows that God is merciful and and gracious and long-suffering so that he could save his elect. The rainbow shows that God does not send flood of judgment again on us as we deserve, but God is withholding the rain, as it were, the judgments, so that he can work out his plan to save. Has that... Has that promise come true? Absolutely. That seed of the woman is Jesus again. And in fact, he's here today. He's speaking to you and to me today. Hear his voice. He says to all sinners, come to me. Come to me and I will give you rest. The story of Noah, though, ended in disappointment, too. The very end of chapter number 9, verse 28, and he died, too. Sin's curse of death was still triumphant. Sin's effects only continued. Humanity began doing the very thing Lucifer had done and tempted Adam in the garden with when he said, you shall be like God. We read in chapter 11, verse 4, that humanity began to build a tower with its top in the heavens to make a name for ourselves. In other words, the hubris and the pride of showing off divine-like powers. In other words, we're back where we started. Yet this time, when all humanity was gathered together in that one place to build that tower, yet this time God kept his word not to flood the earth again as it deserved. Instead, he scattered and confused us as as a human race into languages, peoples, tribes, and ethnic groups. And it was out of that scattered humanity, which had learned the fine art of idolatry, 
that we read of God's mother promise taking on even more detail. The, the, the rest of the book is about God's covenants, chapter 12 to 49, quickly. You see, one of the descendants of Noah's son, Shem, was a family headed by Terah, who had a son named, he had, amongst, amongst his son, he had a son named Abram. But as I said in my sermons on Genesis, don't think that he was head and shoulders above the rest in the sort of spiritual class. Joshua would later remind Israel of these, uh, 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 with these words, Joshua 24, verse 2. Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham, they served other gods. And it was out of that spread out humanity of idolatry including the family of Terah, including our spiritual father Abraham. Chapter 12 says that the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Out of all the peoples on earth, one man was chosen and called by the Lord. Why? What distinguished Abram? from any other son of the line of Shem, Noah's son, or from any other idolater at the Tower of Babel? What distinguished Abram from everybody else? What's the dividing line between everybody and Abram? Not that he obeyed the voice of the Lord. Grace. Grace. He can only obey the voice of the Lord because of grace. Nothing distinguished anyone other than grace. It was the Lord who called him and who sent him and who promised him and so forth. Grace, brothers and sisters, grace is what distinguished Abram from everybody else in that idolatrous world. It's where sin increased, grace amounted all the more, as Paul says. Grace. Or as Paul says elsewhere, to us, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Why? Even as He chose us, He chose us in Him, Christ, before the foundation of the world. Why? In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons of Jesus Christ. Why? To the praise of His glorious grace, with which He's blessed us in the Beloved, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. Grace and grace alone. The story of Abraham is a story of a man whom the Lord chose, called, and established his covenant with, and who in return follows in faith. He believed the Lord, chapter 15, verse 6, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. Grace and faith. Father Abraham was justified by faith, and it was faith alone that received the Lord's righteousness, just like Adam in the garden. And believing, he then obeyed when the Lord gave him the sign of circumcision for all males in his household. Chapter 17. He obeyed and circumcised himself, his son Ishmael, and all other males. Believing, then obeying. It goes in that order. According to Rabbi Saul, he, Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Before he obeyed the voice of God to do that. The purpose, Paul says in Romans 4, verse 11, was to make him, Abraham, the father of all who believe without being circumcised, 
so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. That's you. That's you, brothers and sisters. The story of Isaac is a story of God's fulfilling his promises to give Abram and Sarai a son and a seed in whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He was a, was a seed of promise. It just took a really long time for him to come. The story of Jacob, the story of God's unrelenting grace towards the stubbornness of sinners. Jacob's very own name, heel grabber, or he cheats, shows us this. That ancient promise of the seed of the woman to bruise a serpent's head came in the form of a man who ran from God as long as he could. God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Jacob's a beautiful illustration in application to you and to me that God's covenant promises made in our children's baptism come true. It just might take a really, really, really long time of anguish and pain and toil on our part as their parents. But God is, as one writer described him, the hound of heaven. God's the one who tracks us down and finds us. It's God's grace. Jacob would then father 12 tribes in fulfillment of the Lord's promise to his grandfather Abraham. Chapter 12, verse 2, when he said, I will make of you a great nation. And of those sons, Judah would take precedence, historically, because that was a line through whom the kings would come. Again, in fulfillment of the Lord's promise to Abraham. Kings shall come from you. 17 verse 6. Of Judah, aging Jacob would prophesy these words, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff between his feet, meaning his seed, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the, na- of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choicest vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of of grapes. He shall bruise your head, he shall bruise his heel. The seed promised to Eve continued through Abel, Seth, Noah, Shem, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would be, as Genesis 49 describes, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Finally, chapter 50. Sadly, the story, the, the, sadly the, the sinful and murderous blood of Cain continued to course through the veins of the covenant children of Jacob. If you, if you don't learn anything about the Old Testament, you'll learn this. Everybody's a sinner. <laughs> Everybody's a sinner, right? We call them the saints. We call them the patriarchs. We call them the matriarchs. We call them, you know, the holy men of old. These are sinners. So that sinful and murderous blood that coursed through Cain's veins as he killed his brother Abel was still, still evident in the, in the very covenant children of Jacob, the line of promise. And they were jealous because Jacob loved his son Joseph. And so they concocted a plan to do what? To murder him. To murder him. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And even Judah, the line of David to come, the line of Christ himself, he, even he, participated 
Now, he was a better sinner because he reasoned that we shouldn't murder him. We should sell him to slavery. At least we'll make some money off his body. That's at least how we reason, right? Ah, it's not, not that bad of a sinner. But even as he was sold to the Egyptians, the Lord used him there to prepare a place for the covenant family to survive in a great famine that was to come. And if I can put it this way, as you read the story of Joseph, chapter 37 to 50, the very end of the story, without Joseph experiencing injustice, you, mostly Gentile sinners here, you could not be justified in Christ, who himself was the recipient of the worst injustice the world has ever known. The Son of God, the sinless Son of God being crucified. If Joseph didn't experience that injustice, the Israelites aren't saved, they all die in the wilderness, there's no Jesus Christ. No Jesus, no salvation. And that brings us to the end of Genesis. Chapter 50, verse 20. Where Joseph says to his finally repentant brothers, finally they repent, they're mostly sad that they got caught. But we said back in chapter 50, when we did our sermons through there, they were mostly guilty that they were caught, but they showed some remorse. Here's what Joseph said. You know this verse. Very important verse of the book of Genesis. You meant evil against me. In selling me, uh, trying to kill me, selling me into slavery and so forth. You meant evil against me. But here's the mind-blowing reality. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive. You see, the God who created all things good, even declaring one last triumphal time on day six, very good, was also the God who covenanted with a man who did nothing to deserve, earn, or merit this gift. Father Abraham. And because of that covenant that God had made, that's the point, no amount of evil can thwart God's plan. He's able to create all things out of nothing, and because he has that kind of power, it stands to reason that he even has enough power to turn evil to good. The God who said all things are very good, is able to turn evil towards what? Good. The God who said all things are very good can turn evil to what? Good. You don't believe me? Just look at the cross of Jesus and the empty tomb. That's how powerful our God is who can create. That's how wonderful our God is who makes covenants with sinners like you and me. Let's pray. Lord, bless now, we pray, the Lord's Supper to the benefit of our souls as we come to celebrate you, the great God of creation and covenants. We thank you for your word, and we ask that you would bless now as we've uh, meditated upon it. Use it, Lord, in our lives this very week. And we ask that in Jesus' name and all of God's people say, Amen.